Welcome back to the One God Report podcast. In this episode, we continue our discussion with Troy Salinger about the supposed pre-incarnate appearances of the Son of God in the Old Testament. Is this the truth or is this just myth? In this episode, we look at the passage in Joshua chapter 5, right before the Israelites are about to conquer Jericho. Joshua sees a person with a drawn sword. We should note here that the Hebrew language has a couple of different words for a man or a person. Adam, Adam is more technically a man who's formed from the ground, but a person is more like the idea of a self. So you could have a person that's not necessarily a man. Here Joshua sees this person with a drawn sword and the person introduces himself as the captain of the hosts or the armies of the Lord Yudhevave, the Lord Yahweh. And many Trinitarians and those who believe in the deity of Christ believe this captain of the army of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. I just googled Joshua 5, commander of the army of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus, and just about every one of the first links says that either this possibly could be the pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, or this for sure is. Even though in the main, the links that I came up with were Protestants, we must remember that there's nobody in the New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, that says that this captain of the Lord's hosts, the Lord's army, is a pre-incarnate Jesus. But all these commentators say this, like they've discovered such a great mystery and they've made some real important discovery. So in this episode, Troy breaks down the four elements of this event that Trinitarians claim are evidence of a Christophany in the Old Testament. Those four elements are that Joshua falls down and worships. Just a heads up on a couple of words, the Greek word proskuneo, meaning to fall down or worship, depending how one wants to translate it. And the Hebrew equivalent, shacha, means the same, but carries with it the idea of a bodily posture, a bowing down low to the ground. And the second element, Trinitarians will say, well, he's called Lord, so this must mean he's Jesus. Quite honestly, these arguments are just bogus, but I'll let Troy describe it in a nicer way. And then also, this is one of two places where somebody's told to remove their sandals. The other one being, of course, the burning bush. And the fourth one here is when the captain of the Lord's army speaks, the text will say, and Yahweh said. So this supposedly is evidence that this literally is Yahweh. Of course, we're going to see all this fits perfectly into the idea that this captain of the Lord's army is representing Yahweh. And when he speaks, it's as if Yahweh speaks. And also, Troy will make a pretty good suggestion on who this actually is, this captain of the Lord's army. Another little heads up on a Hebrew word that Troy will use here is sar, which is the word captain or chief commander, or even prince. This is the Tsar Tzva Yudhevave, the captain of the hosts or of the armies of 
Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh-Ab-Gad. So let's continue with our interview with Troy Salinger. The pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 5. Okay, what's next? All right, oh, another popular one used by Trinitarian apologists is in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Let's go ahead and read that. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? And he replied, neither, but as captain of Yahweh's army, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? The captain of Yahweh's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Okay, so this is another mysterious figure who shows up in the Old Testament that is proclaimed to be a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. Now, this passage contains, you know, some typical elements that are supposed to establish this personage as being, you know, either a theophany or a Christophany. Just as a side note, from a Trinitarian perspective, I don't really see what the difference between a theophany and a Christophany would be from a Trinitarian perspective. Since they believe Christ to be God, second person in the Godhead, wouldn't any appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ actually be a theophany? Yeah, so, exactly. You know, yep. they, they like to make distinctions like that, but it really doesn't make any sense from their mm. own perspective. All right, so anyway, we see basically four typical elements within this story which may suggest a theophany or, or Christophany. They are, number one, that Joshua falls to the ground and worships this person. And this person does not stop him from doing so. In other words, he seems to accept the, the worship. Number two, Joshua addresses this person as Lord. The third thing would be that Joshua is told to remove his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy. And then the fourth thing is that when this personage begins to speak to Joshua, which begins in the next chapter, it's simply, the text simply says, Yahweh said to Joshua. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this personage is in, in effect being called Yahweh. All right, so th these are the elements that lead Trinitarians to think that this is actually an appearance of God, of course, it can't be God the Father because he can't be seen, so it must be God the Son. That's the reason. So let's see if we can work our way through these four things. Before I interpret those four elements from a biblically Hebraic framework, let, let me suggest who I think this person is who is appearing to Joshua. Now, I, I can't prove this absolutely, but I really don't see any obvious disqualifiers for this proposal, but uh, I'd like to propose that the captain of Yahweh's army in Joshua 5 is actually Michael the Archangel. Mm. And my reasons are as follows. The word there for captain in the Hebrew is the word sar, mm -hmm. which simply means a, a ruler, a fisher, a captain, a chieftain, something like that, a prince. Now, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 13 and 21, 
Michael is actually referred to by the same term. He's mm-hmm. actually called a saw in, in Daniel 10. In 10.13, Daniel 10.13 specifically calls him one of the chief saw. So that's one point. Okay. Then as a chief saw, this would mean that other sawreen would be under his authority. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the same thing that is meant in the New Testament by calling Michael an archangel, mm-hmm. right? An arch, arche, a ruler, a ruler. So he's a ruler, a ruling angel. In other words, he rules over other angels. Uh, he has other angels under his authority. So the reference to Michael and Daniel as a chief sar coincides with the New Testament designation of him as an archangel. In Daniel 10.21 and in Daniel 12.1, we see that Michael is the chief sar specifically in relation to the people of Israel. He has a special duty or commission in relation to the people of, of to the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. And then in the Joshua passage, this personage is the Tsar of Yahweh's army and presumably fighting for the benefit of Israel. The passage in Revelation 12, 7 presents Michael as commanding an army of angels. So when you put all of this data together, I think personally that this is a good, a good fit for uh, Michael being this captain of, of Yahweh's army here in Joshua. It's definitely a viable suggestion. Look, when I read this passage, it's, this is clear that this is a representative. It's not Yahweh. He's the commander of the forces of Yahweh. He's not Yahweh himself. And he's representing Yahweh when he speaks. So, no, I think it's a, it's a good suggestion. This could well be Michael, the archangel, yeah. fighting for Israel. Yep. So if we look, go back to the four implications that I uh, mentioned before, okay, number one, you know, Joshua worships the personage. All I would say to that is that the Hebrew word there, shakah, which is equivalent to the Greek word proskuneo, does not have to mean to worship someone as God uh, or as a deity. Yeah, of uh, course not. No, it, the word can simply denote the showing of, of homage to a superior. Yeah. Uh, in, in that time and culture, that was very common. I mean, yep. you know, people bowed down to those who were of superior rank. In fact, the, the word is used many times in the Old Testament to denote proper honor and homage being given to fathers by their children, brothers to one another. Husbands are shown that kind of honor by their wife. The masters are shown this honor by their servants. You have officials, kings, uh, prophets, kings, and yep. even angels mm. are given this kind of homage. Now, the, the problem is in the English versions of the Bible, when translators choose to render this verb differently, I think, of, according to their theological presuppositions. Yeah. Because when the word is used of homage being given from one man, one human person to another human person, then most translations render that as something like to bow down to. Uh, but when the word is used of something that is being done unto God, then the 
English translations were rendered at by the word worship. So they they change it up, you know, how they translate it depending on who's receiving this act. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now here's the rub. When uh, translators believe that a personage in the Old Testament is a Christophany, and that Shakar is being rendered to this person that they believe is a Christophany, they will translate it as worship instead of to bow down to, which gives the impression to the reader that the one giving the Shakar believes the personage to be God himself. But this is totally false. Yeah. This is just not, not the case. So in this passage, Joshua, because the translators, you know, believe this figure to be a pre-incarnate appearance of, of Christ, many versions render the verb shakar here as worship. You can go check. Now, not, not, all, uh, not all English versions do this, but m- many of the popular ones today do render the word there as worship instead of bow down. Now, as to why the other thing that's brought up is, well, if, if this isn't God, why doesn't the angel, if it's just an angel, why doesn't he deflect this worship away from himself? And the reason they say this, because there's a couple of times in the book of Revelation where the angel that is relaying the revelation to John, well, there's a couple of times where John bows down to do proskuneo to this angel. And the angel tells John, don't, don't do that. Okay. And so it's assumed from this that, well, any angel would say that at any time throughout history, any angel who was bowed down to would tell the person not to bow down. to. Well, this is just an inference, really. The reason why Michael does not stop, if, if it is Michael, assuming it's him, the reason he does not stop Joshua from paying him homage is because he knows the proper customs of the culture of that time. And he knows that Joshua is not worshiping him as if he were God. He's simply bowing down to him as a superior. And indeed, he would be a superior to to Joshua at that time. And acknowledging in the end that this is God's messenger. He's representing God. Exactly. So this is perfectly appropriate for Joshua to bow down to this person, mm-hmm. uh, to pay him homage, without there being any connotation that he thinks this person is God. Now, as far as the case in the book of Revelation, where John bows down to the angel a couple of times, and the angel says, don't do that. I think that we're looking at a difference because of what has happened since Jesus has come and has accomplished what he's accomplished and has been glorified. And now, you know, believers in Jesus are incorporated into, into Christ. So that I think at the time that the book of Revelation was being unfolded to John and John Balzani to the angel. Now, first of all, what Trinitarians are assuming is that John is bowing down to worship this angel as though he were God. Uh, yeah. I, find that, I find that rather strange. It's I don't really think weird. the Apostle John yeah. would have been bowing down to this angel to worship him as though he were God. And in fact, after he did it the first time and was corrected, would he, let's say he, he did bow down and work to worship the angel as God the first time. 
Why did he do it again? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a very silly idea when you think about it. John mm-hmm. knows this angel isn't God. Yeah. John, in his culture, I mean, when you see an angel, you fall down. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it's an awesome looking being. You know, he's you know higher than you. At least in your mind, that's what you think. And so mm-hmm. you bow down to them. You give them the homage that they deserve as being a superior. The reason the angels in Revelation deflect this homage, they state it themselves. In both cases, it says, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers. Mm. So at, at the time now, after Christ has come and he's accomplished his work, and now believers in, in Christ share in in what Christ has done and we shall, uh, as I believe it says in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, that we believers will judge angels. Mm. Uh, and I believe the word judge there doesn't necessarily mean, you know, like judge in a court, make a decision, but meaning to rule over, that believers will rule over angels. And yeah. I think angels now, understanding that, <laughs> now... If a believer in Christ bows down to an angel to show him homage, they're going to deflect that homage mm. uh, because they now feel that they're not superior to believers in Christ. Amen. Uh, that's how I, I would explain that. Amen. Yeah, the book of Revelation reflects a new situation because you've got the man, Christ Jesus, at the right hand of God. Exactly. The man, the human. So those angels know that there's a new arrangement in, in authority status. Yes. Uh, and, I believe uh, Peter says that uh, Christ is going into the heavens with angels now being in submission to him. Right. So, to the man. So, right. To the man, Christ Jesus. Yep. And therefore, to, by extension, to all those who are in Christ. Yep. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean that we are actually experiencing that now at the moment. We don't, you know, command angels around, you know, to go do our bidding. But there, there is a time coming where it says explicitly that believers will judge or, in a sense, rule over angels. So any other points uh, here about Joshua 5? Yeah, uh, so Joshua calls him Lord. Okay, so uh, again, this is taken to be, you know, like he's calling him Lord in the sense that he's God. But this oh, is please. Just, yeah, this, this is, is getting just... so old. I don't know how to say this, but Troy, <laughs> right. come on. Okay. Right. It's just the Hebrew word Adon. Adon, Adoni. Adon. I don't call, yeah. by the way, I don't call, if I think it's Yudhe Vave, I don't call him Adoni. Right. That's of what you call I, maybe the king, but you don't call Yudhe Vave that. Okay, well, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so this is just, again, you know, something that it, in the custom of that time and culture, it was something that was common to address a superior by that term. Again, all of the, the people that I, I said received shakar also would be given this designation uh, a lord, you know, mm-hmm. a, a father by his children, a husband by his wife, you know, yep. a king, a prophets were given this term. In fact, the, uh, the two things often went together, right? You would express shakar to one by bowing down and then saying, I don't need my lord. So the two things actually went together many times in the expression of homage to a superior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that's all that's going on here. There's no need to understand this as anything more than that. 
Okay, so then the third thing is that Joshua is asked to remove his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy ground. You know, at first, this may seem like, hey, you got a point here. As we looked at the passage in Exodus 3 a little earlier, Moses was told the same thing, right? When the, the angel appeared in the, in the bush, uh, he was told to remove his sandals because the place where he's standing is holy ground. Well, we are, we've already established that that was simply an agent in Yahweh. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, we told that we're told that explicitly in the New Testament. So really, all argument about that should end. There should be no debate over who was actually in the bush. We're told in the New Testament who it was. Mm-hmm. So that debate on that really should cease. So what is strange, what I find strange is to, for this claim that the removal of the sandals and he's standing on the holy ground must imply that this person is God himself, is that uh, we only have two occasions where, where this is enjoined upon a, uh, the person who's receiving the visitation. But yet Trinitarians believe there are many Christophanies, right? Many times, what about like Genesis 18, Judges 6, Judges 13, Exodus 34, all instances where they believe the pre-incarnate Son of God appears to someone. In none of those other incidents are they asked to remove their sandals because the place where they're standing is holy ground. Mm-hmm. Well, well, why not? I mean, if, if all of those appearances are supposed to be the same thing, that is, the pre-incarnate Son of God appearing, and he is Yahweh himself, then how come on only two occasions is the person told to remove his sandals uh, because the ground is holy? Well, I don't think anybody really knows <laughs> why in those two instances alone uh, the person is told to do that. And in all the other instances, they're not told to do that. You, your guess is as good as mine, but I, I don't see how it would necessarily imply that the person is God. Mm -hmm. I think that that's simply something that Trinitarians want to latch onto because it gives some kind of support to their idea there. Mm -hmm. And Troy, in both cases, we have clearly a representative of God saying this. Exactly. Right. So the earth the land belongs to God. He gives it to whom he will. He set it apart. You know, that's what holy means, being set apart. They're about to enter into the promised land. God owns the earth. He's giving that section of land to Israel. Okay, but in each case, the command is made by a representative of God, whatever the meaning is of taking your shoes off your feet. Yeah, exactly. All right, we can move on to the last thing, and that is when this personage begins to speak to Joshua, the text in Joshua says, and Yahweh said to Joshua. Okay, so this implication may appear to be like the strongest one for their case, since the text actually attributes the speech of this person to Yahweh. But in fact, it's really the easiest one to explain. We talked about this last time. In the ancient Semitic culture, when someone sends an agent to convey a message on their behalf, then the words of the messenger are regarded as the words of the one who sent it. And so we saw how when an author of scripture is relating a story, 
where a messenger gives a word from God, they just simply attribute the words to Yahweh. They just say, Yahweh said. We brought out a very good example of this last time in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah is addressing King Ahaz with a message from Yahweh. And then it says, and then Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz. Well, the obvious implication is that it was Isaiah still standing there in front of Ahaz. Maybe somebody thinks that all of a sudden Ahaz just heard an audible voice out of the thin air or something. But that's not how it usually works, right? God sends messengers. And there was Isaiah standing there in front of Ahaz. Yet the text says Yahweh spoke again to Ahaz. Obviously, he spoke through Isaiah, but it is recorded as Yahweh speaking. Because mm-hmm. in effect, when Isaiah was speaking, he was speaking Yahweh's words. Mm-hmm. The captain of Yahweh's army, when he speaks, that speech is attributed to Yahweh. Yep. Like we said, it's the same case in Isaiah 7. I mean, it's exact parallel. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's really no problem there. We'll stop there for now, and God willing, continue with Troy next time to discuss Genesis chapter 18 and 19. Abraham's three visitors. Are one or all of these visitors a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament? I really see most of the Christian world is ignorant about the idea of agency. I know I was. I taught Bible in Israel for decades, and I don't think I ever explained the idea how an angel or a messenger of the Lord, of Yahweh, can represent Yahweh. So when the messenger speaks, that means Yahweh is speaking. If a person can understand the idea of agency, all this confusion and fog about who is really appearing and who is really speaking, and the whole suggestion of a pre-incarnate Jesus just becomes totally unnecessary. Yahweh's agent, Yahweh's messengers represent Yahweh. They speak for Yahweh. When they speak, it is Yahweh speaking. Yishma'u anavim v'yismahu. The humble will hear and rejoice.